Black girls are 16% of the female student population in the United States, but more than one-third of all female school-based arrests. And these discipline disparities start as young as preschool. How do we begin to make sense of this polarizing gap? You know, many things contribute to the disparities that we find in the data um, associated with school discipline. Um, one of the things, you know, that I've been sharing in this conversation about school push-out and black girls is that uh, black girls are the only group of girls who are disproportionately overrepresented in all categories for which discipline data are collected by the U.S. Department of Education. And when we look at this uh, continuum of discipline in partnership with the uh, community conditions, the uh, ways in which our society has misunderstood and misrepresented elements of black femininity, and we look at also, you know, the other issues that contribute to school push-out, like academic marginalization or underperformance in school, then we start to understand that this is not just about girls being bad, but we start to see a set of conditions that uh, present a unique um, opportunity for there to be a vulnerability to contact with the criminal legal system and contact with school disciplinarians or, or policies and practices. So, you know, at the center of this discussion about school push-out and, you know, and the way in which I hope people are reading the uh, disparities that exist in the data is to understand that what we're talking about is the convergence of multiple factors. These are girls who are dealing with multiple forms of victimization and abuse, uh, multiple forms of oppression, and that their response to that oppression is often uh, misread as combative, angry behavior. And sometimes it is angry, and that doesn't make it any less victimizing, right? So when we're talking about um, responses and we're talking about contact with the with the disciplinary um, uh, authorities in schools and black girls, it's important for us to understand the centrality of trauma and to also explore the cultural conditions that have facilitated a consciousness that renders black girls uniquely vulnerable to having their behaviors being read as loud and aggressive and uh, dangerous to the school environment when uh, they may not necessarily be so. So in the process of writing Push Out, you talked with black girls in elementary through high schools around the country about their experiences. What did those conversations reveal to you that statistics or other formal research couldn't? I think what's important here, when we, talk, when we historically understood or the way that we've constructed um, a public understanding about you know, the quote-unquote school-to-prison pipeline has really been a very linear way to frame a uh, contact between youth on campus and how that contact um, with youth on campus may lead to uh, involvement in the criminal or juvenile legal system. It was important for me and really what came through in the narratives to convey was this, again, the centrality of victimization in the lives of girls who are most at risk of getting in trouble in schools and most at risk of school push-out. So I, went, I worked backwards and talked to girls who had experienced school push-out, who had been removed from school, who were being educated in juvenile detention facilities, and I talked to them about what their education story uh, is and was. And in almost all of those cases, these girls, these black girls understood that education was important to them. So, you know, their own consciousness um, was participating in the, you know, the sort of common knowledge of, you know, education playing an important role in their life trajectory. 
At the same time, though, while they valued education in theory, they had gone to schools and had engagement with educators that was telling them something different. Almost all of the girls had been expelled or suspended from school early on um, in their lives. Uh, you know, having their first experience with suspension in kindergarten and first grade, you know, telling stories about their own experiences with gendered racialized oppression. So they had experience with racial bias and they had experience with gender bias from the educators in their lives as well as with the other caring adults who were on campus. They also described being repeatedly victimized in community and in schools and having that victimization either uh, rendered um, secondary to the pain and victimization of their male counterparts or they were not believed in their uh, spaces of learning and in their homes and there were no uh, robust uh, sort of continuum of services in their communities and partnered with their schools to respond to this victimization. So what happened or what has happened in their lives is that they express the way children do when they've been exposed to trauma and victimization. They have acted out in ways that adults have deemed disruptive. They have tried to fight back when they felt that they were being uh, assaulted or they felt they were in danger. And they're discussions and responses to the danger in their lives were then read as aggressive, uh, combative behavior, um, you know, rather than responses to trauma. So, you know, their, their narratives to me really represent an opportunity to hear from the viewpoint of girls who have experienced school push-out, um, you know, what their stories are and how they believe the, uh, the community of caring adults could better respond to these conditions, and that includes the educators in their lives, but it doesn't um, exclusively mean that it's all about what educators can do. They are often pointing to other you know, community members as well who are a part of the solution. You described seeing a raw, uncultivated version of yourself in the girls you spoke with. How did your own past experiences in school inform your exploration of the criminalization of black girls in education? I was always a high performer in school, and um, you know, while I was a high performer, that didn't mean that I was not subjected to uh, you know, differential treatment from some educators or um, subjected to uh, you know some of the thoughts and comments that uh, triggered me in other ways uh, to question my own behavior and my own body. Um, I am a survivor of sexual assault. And this early victimization in my life, I think, has shaped how I read and respond to girls who also risk sexual victimization and who are in schools where now there are dress code policies that allow for adults to continuously police the bodies of girls and to police the bodies of black girls in ways that they perceive to be different than the way in which their white counterparts or Asian counterparts have their bodies policed. And I mean that in the sense that, um, you know, girls in the, in the book describe situations like arriving in school in short shorts on a very hot day and being dress coded. And, you know, when that occurs, you know, girls then say, and, and girls that I talk to in the book from, you know, communities in Chicago, in New Orleans, in the Bay Area, in Southern California, you know, they all describe this process of adults looking at their bodies, um, reading their, their bodies as more sexual than, you know, their other counterparts, and 
you know, really all they're saying is, but we're just girls, you know, we're just girls wearing shorts on a hot day, and what does that have to do with how I learn, <laughs> right? I'm trying to learn, and I came to school, and you want to turn me away because you think my shorts are too short. One girl said, you know, my body is my body, right? That's not going to change based upon what you feel is an appropriate body. And so, you know, I think there's a way in which um, these kinds of statements have been said in the past, but educators, researchers have really not picked up on what girls are trying to say and really try to center these narratives in their exploration of how we could construct schools that are uh, more reflective of the diversity of our communities these days, but also ways in which we um, are engaged in an enforcement of respectability politics as opposed to really engaging girls as human beings with respect. And so, and, and teaching that um, and establishing a climate that facilitates that in our, in our places of learning. So, you know, I think my history and my work, you know, certainly informs how I have heard the girls speak. My work pr prior to coming into this space, you know, my, my very first job was as a student teacher in what was called the Summer Bridge Program in San Francisco. And very early on, you know, I have always understood that education is an important factor in the development um, and healthy well-being of our communities. And, I, you know, I establish in the book and talk in the book about the critical role that education has played in the lives of black women historically and black girls historically. And so, you know, my own... Uh, you know, sort of worldview, if you will, with respect to education also informs how I perceive the promise of black girls when they tell me things like, I want to go to school, but I just don't think it's a place for me, <laughs> right? What does that mean? If a girl says, this is a place where you got to fight and I don't feel safe, what does that mean? So I think what we've got to do, you know, as the community of caring adults, as educators, as those who are committed to educational equity, is to continue to interrogate and center the narratives of girls um, in ways that allow for us to establish more robust um, and critical engagements. And I certainly think that my, um, you know, personal background as well as my training as a researcher and my, you know, participatory worldview as as a researcher in the criminal and juvenile legal fields um, contributes to that. Lots of criminologists were beginning to think about girls in contact with the justice system, but um, there was not a strong role and robust engagement around what the unique pathways are and the educational pathways are for girls to be in contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system. And so, you know, having the opportunity to engage with girls who had been in contact with the justice system and who were trying to get back into school or who had been commercially sexually exploited and out of school for a very long time, their narratives were not really engaged um, the way that I felt that they could, especially when they overlap with the oppressions that are faced by girls uniquely as a function of their race and gender. And so, you know, as I was talking with these girls, um, and, and I actually include this in the book where I, when I talk about running into a particular 11-year-old girl who described herself as a hoe, quote-unquote, and it broke my heart um, to hear her refer to herself in such manner and also to think about how uh, we had come as a society 
accustomed to interacting with girls in detention facilities um, who had this commercial sexual exploitation and who had experienced multiple forms of victimization. Um, and the only thing we could do is label them as truant. And that's where I started to ask, I guess, a series of questions related to um, why, aren't, why aren't they in school? What is happening in school that makes them feel that they can't be there? Um, many of these girls are being objectified in community, um, in schools, as I was saying. Many of the girls describe inappropriate and unwanted touching and comments. Um, you know, there's a lot that facilitates safety and informs how we understand what it means to have a safe learning environment, and often girls are not at the center of that. In a nationwide culture of increased surveillance and zero-tolerance behavior policies in schools, you write that unconscious bias created by the racial, gendered, and classist stereotypes in America increases the exclusion of black girls from learning spaces, which has the potential to push girls who are already struggling into the criminal justice system. What do you believe are the biggest issues facing K-12 black female students? You know, I think there are a host of issues that black girls are facing K through 12, and I would even say pre-K through 12. Um, you know, I think with respect to this issue on policies, practices, and prevailing consciousness that facilitate criminalization poses, I think what we're dealing with are a series of issues that are tied to harsh punishment in response to problematic student behavior. So you get cases like a six-year-old girl um, having a tantrum in her kindergarten class, and instead of her being uh, engaged with love or, um, you know, responded to with some degree of caring, she's placed in handcuffs and placed in the backseat of a police car. Um, you have situations where girls may be arriving to school in clothes that the school deems um, inappropriate, and instead of handing her another T-shirt or saying, you know, let's talk to boys in the school and, and other girls in the school about ways to, um, you know, not be sexist and inappropriate, we police the bodies of girls who show up if we feel that something is too provocative. So, you know, I think there are these, these hosts of ways in which black girls are uniquely feeling um, that their presence in school is not consistent with who the school believes should be there. And we hear those through the narratives over and over again. Um, there's not the, you know, for black girls who tend to attend um, these hyper-segregated schools that are high poverty and often low performing, they're in schools where there is the belief among administrators that zero tolerance, punitive responses to negative student behavior is the way to curb negative student behavior rather than the development of a continuum of responses um, or restorative practices that allow for young people to, um, you know, come to terms with how they have created harm and who will be responsible for resolving the harm together, right, co-constructing discipline and, and other policies that impact them. Um, and so, you know, I think what's happening here and what I try to describe is um, the presence of, you know, biased learning environments and the absence of resources and, you know, other college and career pathways that can facilitate healing to, in response to um, much of the problematic behavior and, and the underlying causes of the problematic behavior that I was describing earlier. You say that one of the biggest causes of the discipline disparity is that black girls do not fit into society's narrow definition of femininity, which is white. And you note know in your book 
that black girls are subject to more scrutiny and put into either good girl or ghetto girl categories, both of which reinforce historical and current stereotypes about black femininity. You write that these characteristics, which are often perceived as undesirable, are adaptive behaviors to generations of oppression, and that schools don't recognize the dynamics that are at play. How can educators combat their unconscious bias and help to recast the negative images of young female black students? Well, first I want to say, you know, I think it's important to recognize, and I say this often, that I believe most educators are in the field because they love children and they believe in the promise of education and the, and the educational promise of all young scholars. I do believe that. I also believe that we are all living with unconscious bias that informs how we read behaviors, what decisions we make, and how we interpret language, volume, presentation, etc. And so, you know, understanding that we're all living with impli implicit bias and whether it aligns with our professed beliefs or not, we are still impacted by negative stereotypes about individuals and about identities. And in order for us to come to terms with that, we have to engage in the development of other tools, training, decision-making instruments that serve as a guide, really, for us to um, engage in a much more fair and um, equitable way when we're talking about how we respond to children. Often, you know, when I talk about the, the narrow definition of femininity, I don't think that society's narrow definition, which aligns most closely to what is normed for white middle-class families, um, I don't think that really serves anyone particularly well. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I do acknowledge that that's a, a problematic space, period. Um, and it has a particular impact on girls who are perceived as the opposite of that. If girls are loud rather than quiet, if girls wear pants and present in ways that are typically perceived as more masculine than wearing a skirt, um, that's a problem. If girls show up in a skirt that is too short um, as opposed to one that might be longer, that's a problem. If girls you know, are wearing a tank top and they, you know, are voluptuous, then that's a problem. So, you know, I think that there are these ways in which, um, you know, how we determine what is voluptuous, how we determine what is too short, how we determine what is too loud, these are all things that are informed by our own implicit biases that tend to uh, really favor our own in-group. So that means, you know, we perceive as normal the things that we're accustomed to seeing. And when we don't have a particularly diverse teaching force, then we have a greater likelihood that the individuals engaging with youth from different and, and various backgrounds, you know, those adults are not necessarily going to understand, uh, at least from the very beginning or innately or from their own cultural vantage point or their own in-group, what is happening. So... What I think needs to happen is a much more robust discussion in teacher preparation and training um, opportunities about implicit bias, about decision-making matrices, about um, ways in which uh, youth can be brought into establishing um, both a classroom culture and a school culture that honors their norms as well as those in which, you know, that, that are typically enforced by schools. Um, and in a way that can be, you know, much more constructive than, uh, you know, the way that many of our uh, schools are currently constructed to implement and demand 
uh, behavioral, you know, modification systems as opposed to really working with young people to say, you know, what is what does it look like to you? How can we develop some agreements together about what this needs to, to be and look like? And, you know, frankly, I'm also of the mind that while dress codes, um, you know, are increasing in popularity among schools, they really mean little um, you know, especially when we're talking about the codes that impact most directly girls, they have little to do with how girls learn. It's about how they present and look in school. And, you know, there are many schools that don't have dress codes um, or that don't place an emphasis on what girls look like, but rather what they are learning and how they are engaging with the material. And that's ultimately what matters uh, in my mind. And so I think that there's an opportunity for us to think about dress codes, to examine them, to at a very minimum remove language that uh, has a disproportionate impact and or you know, express um, impact on girl, black girls, girls of color uh, in a way that is negative uh, in order for us to really move forward with supporting them as critical thinkers and learners in schools. You offer solutions to cultivate quality learning environments for young black female students, including protection from victimization, fostering discussions about healthy intimate relationships, quality student-teacher relationships. So what might putting these solutions into practice look like both at the policy and the classroom level? I think what's important is that, um, you know, I, I think we're at a place now where we can have real conversations about what the function of school is. And in my mind, school can either reinforce dominant ideas uh, that are present in society, the status quo, or they can actively work uh, to develop skill sets among young people to be critical participants in the process of developing um, the society they want to be a part of and live in. So I talk about, you know, there being these particular conditions in place to do those kinds of things that you just, you know, sort of ticked through. And I talk about them in the context of developing healing-informed responses to problematic student behavior, healing-informed classrooms and schools, and the emphasis on healing is really in response to the recognition of trauma that is um, alive in many ways among girls who are most at risk of school push-out, but also establishing college and career pathways for girls and developing responsive and de-biased learning, which is ultimately about developing uh, you know, culturally competent, gender-responsive curriculum, integrating the arts, and really directly addressing um, the issue of implicit bias. Schools begin to do that when they operate in partnership with the students that they are engaged with, with the teachers who are, you know, first responders when there's an issue and also those who are, are dedicated to preserving a classroom uh, climate that is safe and conducive to learning, and also parents um, and, and the youth themselves. When we were constructing policies or when policies were constructed um, that you know, resulted in zero-tolerance responses to student behavior or dress code policies, black girls were not really at the center of that discussion, even though they have disproportionately been impacted by them. So it's important for us to think about how we engage young people in co-constructing with us as adults the kind of learning environment that we want to facilitate and have in place. I've seen really successful models work in places where Educators work with students at the very beginning of the year to construct a set of classroom norms. 
They, they have specific tasks for individuals, buddy systems. Um, some, one classroom uh, adopted an entire village-like um, scenario where there were different um, uh, features and, and tasks and roles for each student to play from the healer to the, you know, they wanted to be kings and queens, so that was negotiated <laughs> in, the, in the context of the classroom. But they were also, you know, really responsive to, to the idea that they were a community of individuals that were set in school to learn. They did not enter a classroom that said, these are my rules, abide by them. They, went, they walked into a classroom that said, okay, we all have a common goal to be here and to learn. Now, what do we need to make that take place? And asking that question and engaging young people in that process is restorative in and of itself, but it's also empowering and giving young people the tools they need to engage the, account of, the accountability that adults so desire among young people. So I think it's really important for us to take a step back and think about how we engage young people in the process of developing policies and practices in schools, in the process of cultivating a climate that is most conducive to their learning, and working with them to establish structures of accountability. Um, and, you know, one of the things that one of the teachers that I interviewed for this project um, shared with me was that ultimately she saw her work as teaching more than the curriculum. She saw, and, and you know, I certainly see this among, you know, other educators that I know and I have been a part of this space too, where an educator is often called to do more than just teach the curriculum. And that level of, of uh, commitment to responding to children and, and sort of, Engaging them as whole people and as whole learners is really important when we're talking about children who have a risk or are facing multiple oppressions or who have been dealing with um, multiple risk factors associated with a potential for being in contact with the criminal and juvenile legal systems as well as a potential for being pushed out of school. So, you know, ultimately I think what schools can do better is actively engage young people in this process of facilitating their own learning environment in a way that um, presents them with opportunities to lead, but also opportunities to follow and understand that that's okay. You are now traveling the country with Rebecca Epstein, who's executive director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality, to speak with black girls and school police officers. Can you explain what this work is, talk a little bit about what these conversations have revealed, and where you would like the larger conversation about involvement of law enforcement and school discipline to go? Yeah, um, the project that um, the National Black Women's Justice Institute and the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality um, are involved in is really about girls of color. The project itself is actually broader than just black girls. It's looking at girls of color and their relationship with school resource officers. Um, and the project is exploring really, you know, what this relationship has been. Once again, the policies and practices that have been put in place um, in response to these elevated discipline rates for girls of color um, were not constructed with girls in mind. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is get a better sense of what some of the concerns are, the observations, but also the opportunities to improve the relationships are while as long as, you know, there are school resource officers in schools. Um, there has been very little that explores, you know, the actions that officers are called to enforce in schools and almost the only time that we hear about engagement with law enforcement and girls of color is if there has been an arrest on campus and it makes, you know, a, um, the news in some way, shape, or form primarily on social media. 
And what we wanted to do was engage law enforcement officers in an opportunity to talk about how they see their role as school resource officers and what training and uh, engagement they've had on working specifically with girls of color. Like I said, you know, when we're talking about educators in schools, you know, school resource officers have become a part of the school climate. So it's very important to talk to them, too, about the implicit biases that they are engaging when they interface with girls of color and what kinds of training they're receiving to help reduce the use of harmful tactics when talking to and working with girls of color, um, getting a better sense of what their concerns are as um, law enforcement professionals in schools as it pertains to girls of color. These are questions that haven't really been interrogated, and so we wanted to take a look at that. We've emphasized um, and, and centered our work primarily in the South um, because there, while there have been incidents to emerge um, in various other parts of the country, the southern region produce, has the highest rate of uh, school discipline, particularly in some of the categories that um, we want to further explore, such as corporal punishment and really looking at this relationship between society's norms around presentations of femininity. Um, there's a certain southern culture that is often reinforced in schools. And so we wanted to learn more about that and also figure out how we can um, improve the outcomes such that girls of color do not uh, end up criminalized um, for a failure to adhere to school uh, policies and practices. But um, if there is actually a need to engage law enforcement, that it's done even in a way that is trauma-informed. And so, and so we want to... Um, learn more, and that's essentially what this project is. It's, it's an exploratory, um, appreciative inquiry to help us understand what the issues are, how the girls are seeing it, and how the law enforcement officers are seeing it so that we can inform the trainings, the uh, toolkit development, and the conversations that have not yet been held about how we engage with girls of color. <laughs> 